Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lost with Friends. As always, I'm your host, Paul Casey, and I'm joined today by a few different people for this very special episode of Lost with Friends. Go ahead and introduce yourselves, everybody. Hi, this is Wayne. Uh, I know I haven't been on much lately, but uh, it's good to be back. Hello, friends. This is Kev. Hi, my name is Liam. Um, I'm glad to be here again today for this. So I thought I would do things a little different for this episode. This, uh, in this episode, we're going to be discussing the Missing Pieces 13 uh, installments, the Lost uh, webisodes or mobisodes or miniseries or whatever you want to call it. And I figured before we get into the actual discussion of those, I would give a little bit of backstory as to um, what exactly these are, because I found through asking certain people to be on these, some people have never even actually heard of these. And if you are a not hardcore Lost fan like us, you may not even be aware of these as well. So I'm going to give a little bit of a sort of backstory on these episodes. And then um, if you're someone who doesn't know about these, you can go and you can find them uh on very you know various places online they're probably up on youtube i think abc's website at least here in america i think they still have them um but if you this is one of those things where if you really want to find them you will find them so um the missing pieces was a 13 episode series of webisodes or mobisodes uh, originally released weekly on Verizon mobile phones and then one week later on ABC.com. At varying lengths, none of the episodes went over four minutes, and they filled in a bit of the existing timeline of Lost from the first three seasons, which of course we've covered here already on this show. They are considered canon, some stock footage was blended in with new footage, and it added up, it features about a half hour of new Lost material, give or take. Uh, they are available on the Season 4 DVD and Blu-ray sets, albeit in their original production order, not the released order from the original Verizon and ABC.com releases. This particular review and episode, this Lost with Friends episode, will be the DVD slash production order, since that's how I watched them and took my particular notes. Uh, of course, Lostpedia and Wikipedia list them in their original aired order, and I totally understand that, and most cases, if you go and find them in various places, they will be, you know, episode 1, 2, 3, 1 through 13, they will be in their released order. However, we will be covering them in the uh, order that they are on the DVD, since that's how I watch them. And I think most people that uh, watch this sh- or listen to this show have the DVDs and things like that. So um, they will probably be uh, if they're following along, if they're doing their rewatch, or even in a future rewatch, they will probably be doing them based off of that order as well. Um, so uh, this the miniseries, the webisodes, or mobisodes, however you want to call it, uh, won an Emmy, actually, in 2008 for Outstanding Special Class Short Form Live Action Entertainment Programs. Now, a little bit of uh, production background on the Mobisodes. It took over two years for the installments to come into existence. One of the original plans was to feature non-Screen Actors Guild actors appearing as various background survivors and show how they were dealing with the same things that our main characters had been covering, such as, uh, you know, the... 
discovery of the guns, what do they think of the others, maybe they speculate on the monster, things like that. Another idea for which a teaser actually appeared at a Comic-Con event, I believe it was 2006, showed the character of Hurley finding a Dharma camcorder and recording parts of their daily lives. This would have been called Lost Video Diaries. Part of the original plan, however, the background survivors, uh, you know, discussing things that our main characters had been covering, is actually how the characters of Nikki and Paolo came into being. Because, of course, um, and we talked about it on this show at, at one point, the fact that uh, in season three, the beginning of season three, the characters of Nikki and Paolo just short, sort of showed up out of nowhere and how they were, uh, you know, like... Well, all, yeah, no, they've actually been there the whole time. The episode expose sort of shows us that and whatever. So the the basis for those characters sort of came out of this idea that the writers had. Now, um, further production stuff. Lost was, as many of us who are huge fans of the show know, Lost was one of the first shows to continue to break ground in what has since been dubbed new media, which of course includes online viewing, alternate reality games, uh, mixing in podcasts and everything else, and even Twitter to a certain extent to sort of help boost this show and the fandom and the overall experience of the show. We often talk on this podcast series about the concept that Lost is an experience because, and not just the fact that, you know, like they reference uh, literature and films and things like that, but just because they had like these alternate reality games, you know, you go to this website and you would get clues and all this sort of stuff. So Lost was one of the first shows to sort of break that new ground. Um, Now, before the show debuted in 2004, not much of this had ever been explored. And I wrote in my notes, actually, hell, even Twitter didn't really exist or at least wasn't as big before Lost. Uh, Now, due to the rise of new media and new contracts from all of the major unions, actors, directors, producers, etc., being needed... Uh, For things such as residual payments, the Writers Guild of America eventually went on strike in 2007, and part of this was because at a certain point, uh, shows were being asked to put out, like Lost, and I have it a little bit later in my notes, Lost and Battlestar Galactica uh, are two of the biggest ones uh, because they came out around the same time where they decided like they wanted to to sort of take advantage of this. They wanted to put out material in the you know during the Christmas break or during the the summer break you know when when the shows would do stuff like that. They wanted to put out things consistently for fans because this was before a lot of even cable series would take you know like they would do you know seasons split it so that that you would get maybe you know each calendar season uh spring summer autumn and and winter like where each thing would get like a certain pocket of episodes this was even before that to a certain extent they wanted you know you're going to have a large portion of your of your summer or of your spring break or whatever you would have nothing they didn't necessarily think that you would forget about the show but they wanted to sort of reward you for being a little bit more of a fan and the problem was that there was no contracts. So yeah, the writers would get paid or the producers or directors would get paid their regular fee for doing these things, but they wouldn't necessarily get residuals. However, uh, you know, for getting hits on their website or getting whatever the, uh, 
production company or distribution company would continue to get ad revenue and they would continue to get, uh, you know, payment for that sort of stuff. But the people who quote unquote put in the work, the actors, the writers, the directors, they would get paid their initial money, but they wouldn't get paid residuals, which is one of the main reasons that the writer's strike happened. Back in 2007, of course, it delayed the beginning of season four of Lost and many other shows. It put a lot of other shows in a sort of limbo where certain ones never sort of came out of it because the writer's strike just sort of disrupted Hollywood for a little bit. Uh, Lost, as I said, Lost and Battlestar Galactica are often two of the most cited examples of the new media used by shows, which forced multiple contract renegotiations, thus leading to the eventual strike. Although many often forget that contracts between the unions and Touchstone, which is now ABC Studios, the company behind Lost, had already come to such an agreement. And of course, uh, during the writer's strike, certain late night programs here, at least in the States, like uh, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, um, Late Night with, uh, I'm sorry, The Late Show with David Letterman, things like that, a few of them across the, the networks had also come to individual agreements with the Writers Guild and the Producers Guild and whatever, where they could you know continue and they would come up with with certain individual or or you know extensions on certain contracts or whatever and of course um it didn't so much happen excuse me it didn't so much happen in lost but with a show like say the office or excuse me something like that where certain times the writers were often the actors certain actors of course um, would not cross the picket line. Certain certain actors, now they weren't even writers, but certain actors would not cross the picket line because they wanted to stand with their fellow union brethren. And certain people who were writers and also actors would not cross the picket lines as well. And it got to the point where the producers, the studios more than studios more than producers. I just I use that term a little broadly. But the studios who want they didn't want to lose money by shutting down production and all of these things, they would often force. Unfortunately, they would force, for lack of a better term, they would say, you know, you as a writer, fine, you don't have to do any of your writing stuff, but you are an actor on this show and you need to show up for work. And some still didn't. And I don't quite have the 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 figures and any or, you know, the the like any articles in front of me at this moment. But, you know, they there was a little bit of backlash because some of them wouldn't and then some of them would. And they got a little bit of backlash from, you know, their some of their uh some of their peers as well, because they were like, oh, I can't believe you crossed the picket line. Now, of course, that didn't necessarily happen with Lost, but people do often forget that certain new contracts uh, for some of these shows and things did uh, come into existence while the strike was happening. Um, Of course, this was part of the issue because uh, the fact that they had already, that Lost... Uh, and a few others had come to these uh, contracts even before the strike or during the strike. This was part of the issue because almost everyone else wanted these same types of deals. This was uh, one of the reasons for the writer's strike was because they were like, well, you know, OK, so Lost and, and Battlestar Galactica and a few others are doing these these things. We want that. You know, they're doing these things. No one's getting paid. Then eventually Lost and Battlestar Galactica and a few others were getting paid for these new media uh, things. And then other places were like, well, we want that as well. And that was, you know, like I said, that was the strike. Um, 
on the second day of the WGA, the Writers Guild of America strike, the uh, the first released Mobisode, The Watch, was put out on Verizon phones and thus Missing Pieces debuted. Of course, for more information on specific production credits, things like that, Lostpedia, as we often say, is a fantastic resource. They have things about how, you know, certain people were credited for these, you know, certain production people were credited for these episodes versus those episodes. That's not necessarily my concern with this particular um episode of of lost with friends however if that is something that you're interested in which i personally i have read that in the past and and it does interest me a little bit but if you're more interested in those very specific specific details you can always check out the lostpedia article and i think the wikipedia article regularly of lost uh missing pieces now personally for me i kind of forgot about these completely um there were a couple that i have kind of inserted like in my brain that they were part of the regular episodes because there are things I remember and things that are important, but I really didn't remember them being a part of this whole missing pieces. So when you brought it up to me, Paul, this was just uh, kind of refreshing that I went to go back and see uh, these little episodes or whatever for the first time, basically in a very long time. And some I had completely even forgot about. So this was a good chance for me to go back and and see some parts of the lost lore, which had become lost to me, no pun intended. As I mentioned previously, I watched and wrote these notes based on the produced order, which is how they appear on my DVD set. So that's the order that they will be appearing in. Uh, The various guests you heard introduced uh, moments ago will feature across the episodes, not all necessarily commenting on all the installments. Okay, so here we go discussing... Uh, the episodes or the mobisodes or I, I continually refer to them as various things across the thing. So first one that appears on the DVD set is King of the Castle. Ben and Jack are playing chess in Ben's home. Ben mentions how this must be weird for Jack, and Jack makes a joke about his father teaching him to play chess when he was younger. This particular line makes me think of many of Ben's one-liners in the past. Uh, but Ben clarifies that he meant Jack excuse me, Jack actually being there amongst the others. Jack comments how he got what he wanted. Ben says he hasn't had anyone with good skill to play against for a while. I wrote, could this line refer to the chess game or the back and forth between all of the leaders on the show? Ben is constantly playing mind games. Jack is trying to look at the overall thing. Even as we go further, characters, you know, uh, Jacob and the man in black, Widmore, who comes in to play a little more, all of that sort of stuff. They, you know, they're all sort of playing this giant game of chess Uh, a real-life game of chess, I suppose. Ben then asks Jack if he can change his... if Ben can change Jack's mind to get him to stay, but mentions how this was more rhetorical. He intends on keeping his promise. Jack wants to know if he intends it or will actually do it. Ben says how the decision isn't entirely up to him. He sounds very similar to Locke when saying that the island has a mind of its own, and if Jack, if it wants Jack to stay, Jack will stay. 
Ben then clarifies that he won't do anything to prevent Jack from getting home. He mentions that if and when Jack leaves, he may one day want to come back, but Jack is adamant that it won't happen when he simply says, never. Ben says how he learned to never say never, but if that day comes when Jack wants to come back, he wants Jack to remember this particular conversation. Ben then moves a chess piece and tells Jack, it was a nice try, though. Uh, This particular installment was written by Brian K. Vaughn, directed by Jack Bender. Jack Bender actually directed all of the uh, Mobisodes. This takes place between days 75 and 80 on the island. Uh, It originally aired as episode 3 of Missing Pieces, but was the first produced episode. It originally aired on Verizon phones November 27th, 2007, and one week later it appeared on ABC.com. The title obviously refers to two chess pieces, King and the Castle, also known as the Rook, uh, but also the concept of the leader of a household. I think you're right in saying that we're obviously not supposed to know it yet at this point, but Ben saying that he hasn't had anybody with some skill to play against in a while was definitely a reference to Charles Bidmore. But, uh, yeah, that's a kind of a hint of things to come. Also, when Jack picks up on Ben's phrasing and how he's wording things uh, about how he won't do anything to personally stop Jack, but you never know what might happen. Like That's a nice pickup by Jack because Ben tends to do this a lot where he says something by not saying it. We know there's always much more behind Ben's words. So that was a nice pickup by Jack. Kind of tells you he knows what he's up against at this point. <laughs> yep. I, I like this um, webisode or whatever. It's it's nice. It's got a lot of uh, consistent themes that you see throughout, you know, the entirety of Lost. The two players, one is light, one is dark. Uh, you know, the obvious power struggles going on with, you know, the game. It's it's obvious the chess game is one, you know, big huge metaphor, and. Uh, you know, nice, nice foreshadowing, and you know, even with even just such a small thing like this, Michael Emerson is still you know great. He, he he's always great in Lost, and even with even with the small little bit thing like this, he's still he's still good. And it's nice to see. It looked watching it. It looked a little weird, like the lighting, whenever it showed whenever it showed Ben. The, the lighting was off. It looked like it looked like they weren't in the same place, but I'm you know obviously they were. It's just I don't know. There was something weird with the lighting when I saw it. Uh, next we have Jack meet Ethan. Ethan Jack. Not long after the initial crash, Jack is rifling through suitcases when Ethan walks up to him asking if he's the doctor. He confirms this when Ethan shows him a suitcase full of medical supplies he supposedly found in the jungle. They introduce themselves to each other. Ethan thanks Jack for getting things together, having perspective, knowing that they need a long-term plan, believing they won't be rescued soon. Ethan further mentions how Jack sees Claire and believes he'll have to deliver her baby eventually. 
Jack mentions how he's glad he's not alone, and Ethan replies, chuckling, that he's definitely not alone. Of course, you know, could this be, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, could this be the fact that there are others on the island, or the fact that Jack is not alone in his thinking, ha ha ha. Jack says he's glad he'll have an assistant when Claire goes into labor. Ethan seems uncomfortable with this, and Jack apologizes instantly. Ethan says it's fine, he's glad the meds helped, and he gets up to leave. He then mentions how his wife died in childbirth, and the baby didn't make it either. Jack has no response for this. Ethan then says how he hopes they're both wrong, and the rescue boats come soon. He walks away as Jack stares at him. Uh, This scene almost plays on an old fan theory that I mentioned a long time ago, back in season one, uh, that at that point, uh, years ago, before it was pretty much debunked, that Ethan was the man that Christian was talking to during the case where Jack turned Christian in for having had drinks before operating, where Jack didn't know that the that the woman was was pregnant. Christian did and still didn't uh, didn't do enough in in Jack's mind. Um, I wrote. Uh, Obviously, that's not the case, but it is strange how they almost brought it back up, knowing how weird the fans are with that kind of stuff about, you know, like, would they think, oh, well, maybe it actually was Ethan. It, you know, it wasn't, but it's it seems very strange to me that they would that they would uh, do that. Um, Now, do we think I wrote in my notes, do we think Ethan was telling the truth about a wife who died in childbirth? It is plausible for a few reasons, but this is the only mention of it that I ever remember happening in anything uh, canon-wise with Lost. Um, Of course, this was written by Damon Lindelof, directed again by Jack Bender. It takes place on day four of uh, uh, post-crash. It originally aired as episode 10, production number two. It was released on Verizon phones January 7th, 2008, and on ABC.com one week later. Ethan is also wearing the same sweatshirt that he wore in Expose. Um, I honestly believe Ethan was telling the truth about his wife dying in childbirth. Um, Because, like, you know, there's really no reason for Ethan to lie about such a thing at that point. Um, you know, he's just passing himself off as one of the survivors. Um, but, you know, I mean, we know that, you know, this pregnancy issue has been a huge issue for the others for several years. Uh, and we know that Ethan uh, has been on the island with the others for most of his life. You know, we know he was born on the island before the pregnancy problem started, you know, because obviously he was born on the island. Um, we know that he join the others as a kid you know like we saw in ben's flashback um so yeah he was was, he's been with the others and you know i would guess you know that his wife may have been one of the first if not the first uh pregnant woman to die on the island and so you know that this this episode really tells us a lot about ethan uh and his motivations you know this you know having gone through that you know, that would make him really passionate about solving the pregnancy crisis on the island, you know, even to the point of becoming obsessive, uh, you know, so that just, you know, kind of reveals a lot about, you know, why he is the crazy person that that, he, that we know him as. Um, and it kind of explains, like, you know, his immediate interest in Claire, you know, like, like he, you know, like we see here. Um, I think this episode probably takes place pretty much right after Ethan first arrived at the survivor's camp. 
And so, you know, you can imagine he sees Claire eight months pregnant and, you know, he's probably like, oh my gosh, this is so perfect. I have got to get some samples, you know? And so, you know, he's like, you know, his, his mind is like so suddenly focused on like, you know, this is the perfect opportunity to get some new data, you know, and ultimately, you know, help me solve this crisis. Now, in the Juliet flashback, there is we do see her, you know, attempt to save an other named Sabine. So, I mean, it's it's possible that that's that 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 could have been Ethan's wife. That was on the that was on the operating table, but you know, I see it as very plausible that what he said was true because we do know that you know that happened a lot. A couple a couple women have volunteered to get pregnant in the hopes of. Uh, fixing the problem. This to me felt like it was the writers kind of responding to some of the nitpickers or the critics uh, back in the first season who might have been like, oh, where'd they get all this medicine from? You know, this, and there's no way they'd have all that. And we see that it was Ethan, and we assume to some degree, uh, maybe Ben or somebody within the others saying, okay, these people are going to need some supplies that they more than likely don't have access to. So to me, this is like Ethan coming in and kind of ensuring their survival. Also, it kind of proves that the others, or maybe just Ethan specifically, weren't all bad. The Adventures of Hurley and Frogert. Hurley is trying to be stealth by sneaking out of a tent we soon find out is Rose and Bernard's. A previously mentioned but first time seen character appears, Neil Frogert. He says hello to Hurley as a wine bottle falls out of Hurley's backpack. Hurley identifies the man as Frogert, but he has disdain for this when he's correcting him saying it's Neil before asking why Hurley is in Rose and Bernard's tent. Hurley tries to play it off, but Neil picks up the wine bottle, which has the Dharma logo on it. Hurley says Bernard told him he could borrow it. Neil then says Hurley doesn't have to lie. If he wants to steal from Bernard, he can. He then pivots the conversation to ask ask about Hurley and Libby, wondering if Hurley is going to make a move. He then calls Hurley Tubby. Hurley, even in these webisodes or mobisodes or whatever you want to call them, still cannot escape the fat shaming. Excuse me, and says that Hurley won't get anywhere past doing laundry with her and to let, quote, a real man show her what's what, unquote. I felt so dirty even just saying that. I'm sorry. Uh, Hurley then scoffs at this, saying he did move past laundry and that they're actually about to have a picnic date right now. He's bringing the wine. She's bringing the blankets. Neil then begrudgingly congratulates Hurley, but reaffirms that if Hurley can't close, it's, quote, again, I feel so bad saying this. It's Neil time now and forever, unquote. Ugh. Uh, he then walks away, leaving Hurley to think about these words. This one was written by Edward Kitsis and Adam Horowitz, who uh, they are. They were pretty much, of course, the second seconds in charge of Lost. They did Once Upon a Time. They tend to do a lot of good Hurley dialogue. I think they do character interaction very well from this show and and uh, Once Upon a Time and a few other things that they've worked on. But they tend to do uh, Hurley-centric things very, very well. Uh, this one was directed by Jack Bender and takes place during the episode Two for the Road, which is also Day 64. 
It originally was aired as episode two, but produced as episode three and was released on Verizon phones November 13th, 2007 and ABC.com one week later. This is the first time we see Rose in Bernard's tent, the first on-screen appearance of Neil Frogert, who was previously mentioned in SOS and teased by producers over a year earlier in their official podcast. Neil is such a slime ball. This reminded me of a cheesy 80s movie or maybe an episode of Saved by the Bell where the bully will put his toxic masculinity on full display while trying to get the girl. Uh, I bet his frozen yogurt was terrible. I thought this was a nice introduction for the character of Froger, you know, a character who's not in it for much, but he does have some memorable moments in his two, maybe three, season five episodes that he's in. And interesting thing I just read on Lostpedia is that Greg Grunberg actually actually started up and ran a successful Frogert, you know, frozen yogurt stand or whatever. I don't know if that was part of the basis for this character or not, but you learn something new every day. Room 23. On the door to room 23 on Hydra Island, an alarm is going off and many others are rushing around panicking. Juliet as the I, sorry, Juliet is there as Ben arrives asking what happened. She says he did it again. They have a back and forth about going in and trying to eventually control him. She also mentions how B, Tom and all the other others won't go anywhere near him. She also mentions how his father is out there looking for him. After he denies her request to take him back, after Ben denies Juliet's request to take him back, uh, he goes on to tell her that Jacob wanted him there because he's important. He's special. She counters that he's dangerous. Ben says how he's just a child. She doesn't let this slide, telling him that he needs to come see what the child did. Outside the building, she asks him, quote, what kind of child does this, unquote. We then see a pile of dead birds on the ground underneath a boarded-up window. They exchange glances. Of course, this is implying, uh, well, heavily, heavily, heavily implying Walt is there. We've seen him uh, basically make uh, at least a single bird fly into a window in the past, his father being out there looking for him, uh, Michael. Uh, this installment was written by Elizabeth Sarnoff, directed, of course, by Jack Bender. This episode furthers the mystery of Walt and his specialness and powers. It takes place between days 45 and 49 on the island. This is the shortest of the webisodes. The sixth released, fourth produced, originally released December 10th, 2007 on Verizon and one week later on ABC.com. This this webisode really doesn't do much more than just create new, more questions on a big, you know, mystery we already have going on in the first place. We don't, we never got much information on Walt and the whole thing's going on. And this just, this just further deepens the mystery even more. So it's almost, it's almost kind of pointless and maybe even a little frustrating, this So this is the missing piece that I actually remember the best. And I actually believe Ben in this case when he says that Jacob told him that Walt was special. Now, 
Jacob may not have said those words to Ben directly, but still. The point that I think a lot of people miss about Walt is that he was always destined to become the new Jacob from the beginning. Uh, hence his power of attraction with the birds, which could eventually develop into working on people, thus bringing them to the island in the same way that Jacob brought people to the island. Um, and for the record, this is also the most annoying of all these Mobisodes due to the fact that that alarm sound from the incident was playing all throughout it, and that's also the same sound that I wake up to every morning. Oh, cool. Buried Secrets Jin is fishing on the shore as Sun watches him from the tree line. She heads further inland and looks at her California driver's license and begins to bury it. Michael runs by yelling for Vincent and apologizes for scaring her. She says how she just needed a moment to herself. They both look down and see the license, which Michael picks up. She can't bring herself to explain in full what it means. He has an idea and tells her she doesn't have to explain before giving it back to her. She then goes on to tell him that she was going to leave Jin and start over in America, but she changed her mind because she was afraid. He comforts her and holds her hands and tells her that they'll be rescued any day now. She says this place is her punishment, her destiny. Which, of course, at a certain point, Jin also felt that this was his punishment, being on the island. Michael suggests talking to Jin but she counters that he isn't the man that she fell in love with. Michael hugs her and says that Jin may just need time. This has been difficult on all of them. He then tells her it'll be okay. They pull apart and look longingly into each other's eyes and lean in for a kiss. Suddenly, Vincent runs past them and barks. She insists on leaving, apologizing to him, and runs away. He doesn't know what to say before going after Vincent once again. This was written by Christina M. Kim, directed by Jack Bender. This episode takes place on day 32, the same day as the episode In Translation. Although it was the 8th aired, it was the 5th produced. Uh, I remember reading once how this particular installment was meant to be a conclusion to the eluded love triangle between Jin, Sun, and Michael earlier in the series, which I've talked about a few times. Certain people who've been on this show don't necessarily agree with with the fact that there was a triangle. Certain people felt that it was sort of there, but wasn't, you know, ever implied. Um, I wrote here in my notes a plot line which seemed to drop even though not everyone believed it was there in the first place this uh installment is something of a reference and conclusion to that the one time things may have moved forward with son and michael they were interrupted thus never trying again and of course they when they see each other uh you know in a few episodes uh from this point in season four they they I thought always they exchanged like a look and like a, you know, oh, hey, it's nice to see you. There is sort of still an awkward tension, but it was more just there was flirtation in the past and that's all it was. Um, this episode originally was released December 24th, 2007 on Verizon phones and one week later on ABC.com. The end of this one really made sense to me, being that Son and Michael are literally in a jungle. And also, Sun really put some effort into her acting in these Mobisodes. Like, the, her and Jin both actually do a really good job, whereas some of the others, I feel like, were just phoning it in. Operation Sleeper. 
In Jack's tent, he wakes up suddenly. Juliet is there and tries to calm him down. She tells him that they need to talk. She says how since she's arrived there, most of the survivors do not trust her, especially Saeed and Sawyer. They think she's there to hurt them, and it's only a matter of time before they figure out. He interrupts her to let her know that he's going to protect her. She thanks him, but wants to finish her thought, which is that their worries are legitimate. Jack is confused. She says how he, I'm sorry, she says how they shouldn't trust her. She's still working for Ben, but she's there to determine which of their women are pregnant so that Ben can take them. Jack is very upset with this. He trusted her. He brought her here. He said she was one of them, meaning the survivors. He mentions her wanting to get on the sub as bad as him. She counters that neither of them were able to get on the sub. She actually believed they would, but was naive to think Ben would actually let them leave. Jack doesn't understand what she means, insisting Locke blew up the sub. She believes there could be more to that story, but Jack focuses on what she's telling him, or I'm sorry, why she's telling him all of this now. She says how last night with Sun, they were in the medical station and saw Sun's baby. She knows that if Sun stays on the island, they both will die. She's been, quote, living Ben Linus's dream for three years. It's time to wake up, unquote. Uh, This installment was written by Brian K. Vaughn, directed by Jack Bender. This originally takes place around the time of DOC, of course. Although it was the fifth released episode, it was the sixth produced. Uh, Originally put out on Verizon phones December 3rd, 2007, and released to ABC.com one week later. I got nothing on that. Sorry. (laughs) The Watch. We see Jack throwing rocks into the ocean. His hair is a bit different than we've seen it. We hear Christian's voice asking him what he's doing. Excuse me, clearly a pre-island flashback. On the beach, they're in front of the hotel Jack will be married in. Jack and his father joke about throwing rocks versus sitting with the wedding planner. Christian then takes a moment to give Jack something special, a family heirloom, a watch. It was Christian's father's, now he wants to give it to Jack. Jack mentions that he's never seen uh, Christian wear it. Christian responds that he didn't. He and his father didn't get along well, with the grandfather even telling Christian to his face that he believed marrying Margot, Jack's mother, was a mistake, so he never wore the watch. Jack wonders if this is his father trying to tell him something, and Christian says how, unlike himself, Jack has made the absolute right choice, thus the watch is his. Jack is surprised and happy at this. His father doesn't uh, commend him very often. Jack jokes that the wedding is actually happening, and Christian jokes that once the flowers are arranged and Jack is out of rocks, it will happen. Christian then asks that if Jack and Sarah ever have children, Jack treats the children better than Christian treated Jack. He then says that he'll see him inside. Uh, written by Carlton Hughes, directed by Jack Bender. This is the only of the Mobisodes, or installments, or webisodes, or whatever you want to call them, from Missing Pieces, that takes place off-island. We get a tease of Jack's grandfather, and a bit of the sideways storyline, both of which we will get more of in the future. Although this was the seventh episode produced, it was the first to air uh, it aired during the second day of the Writers Guild of America strike, which I discussed already. It originally debuted on Verizon phones on November 6th, 2007, and one week later on ABC.com. 
Okay, the only thing I'll say about this episode is, like you said, this was the first episode that actually aired. And so this was my first exposure to missing pieces in general. But, you know, the thing is, by this point, you know, especially after season three, I was so sick of Jack's flashbacks. I mean, you know, just just think back to season three, you know, you I mean, there's the, the Jack's tattoo thing and, you know, the whole stuff with his ex-wife, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was almost as fed up with Jack's flashbacks as I was with Kate's flashbacks. Okay, that's, you know, so on the one hand, I'm thinking, you know, it's cool to see some new lost material, you know, while, while we wait for season four, but then it's like, really? A Jack flashback? That's the best they can do? You know, is this like the kind of quality that we can expect you know so you know i was like well i didn't exactly have high hopes for these mobisos you know at this point but um they definitely got better after that so which i'm glad <laughs> uh this is definitely one of my favorite of the webisodes uh i've always been interested by the relationship between jack and his father christian i think it's one of the more important relationships on the show besides the romantic ones of course and it's nice to see well it's nice to get our first mention of jack's grandfather raymond who we're gonna meet in uh, later on in season five kind of like kind of like how you don't meet program until season five uh. and you know i've always said it that i would have liked to see a Christian Shepherd flashback. I think he, he's a very important character throughout the show with all the n numerous people that he's without throughout all the numerous characters that he's in influenced in the show. And his his re Christian's relationship with his father would have been an, a very interesting one to explore because that could that would help explain that would help uh develop the character of Christian more and, you know, maybe give some insight to Christian's relationship with Jack, which could then give more insight to Jack's relationship with his fake son he has in the Flash Sideways things. And, you know, it's the whole, it's just the whole uh, generational thing. Uh, you know, father-son, father-son, just a, you know, a common theme throughout throughout the show lost and, and it's just interesting to see just a little bit more of it in in this you know s stuff that's not really that significant to the main show has has a little bit that you know kind of is a little bit kind of is a little bit significant and it's also it's also interesting to think about too because we don't we don't see a lot of the a lot of the grandparents on the show you know the fathers are such a important part for the characters but we don't really see we don't really see the parents I mean, the parents of the parents the grandparents they don't really come into factor too much besides besides raymond jack's grandfather and also surprisingly christian who we know is aaron's grandfather but i enjoyed this i i, I enjoyed this one a lot i think it's one of the better ones, one of the more interesting ones, and it, in my opinion, it adds stuff to the show, which some of the other ones might not do.
the whole time I was just waiting for Christian to pull a Christopher Walken and say that he hid the watch up his ass back in Nam, and now he's going to give it to Jack. Oh my gosh. Jin has a temper tantrum on the golf course. Jin, Hurley, and Michael are playing golf. Jin is putting, and Hurley tells him that if he gets it, he wins. Michael has to remind Hurley that Jin can't understand it, but Hurley reasons that Jin can feel him. Jin then gets very, uh, Jin misses the shot, and Michael is happy about this, implying that he won. Jin gets very angry, running around screaming. Through subtitles, we see he's asking the age-old golfing question, why can't I hit the ball in the hole? Very common question. Uh, If you've ever played golf, it's like, it seems so simple, why can't I just do it? Uh, Michael is trying to calm him down, telling him that it's only a game, but Jin yells in Korean, telling Michael to shut up, to not pity him, and how he just wanted one thing to go right. He then even interrupts Hurley, yelling for him not to talk for once. You don't talk. Uh, He then asks how he can lose to both Hurley and Michael. Hurley comments that he recognized their names in Jin's rant. Jin continues frustrated, uh, frustrated, saying he hates this island. He hates that no one understands him, and he wishes he could be happy. Uh, Then he begins yelling at the golf ball. Michael wants to help, but doesn't know how. Jin then begs them to get the handcuff off of him, says he's going crazy and that no one cares about him. He thinks they pity him, and he's beaten men for lesser offenses. Michael moves toward Jin, but Hurley stops him, telling him to let Jin vent. Jin goes back to yelling at the golf ball. Hurley thinks they should take a break from golf for a while. Jin sits down, tired and frustrated, saying he feels so alone. Michael and Hurley grab the golf equipment and walk away, leaving Jin literally alone. Uh, Written by Drew Goddard, directed by Jack Bender, of course. This takes place on day 41, the same day as Deus Ex Machina. Again, still not knowing if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, This is the same day that Boone and the Tailies communicate with each other over the radio. It was the 11th released and 8th produced installment. It features what appears to be a reference to Happy Gilmore when Jin yells at the ball, something I'm sure recurring guest Esteban just loved. Uh, This installment also helps explain why they stopped suddenly playing golf, other than, of course, the more pressing matters uh, in regards to the others and uh, the hatch and all of that. Um... Matthew Fox is listed in the credits for this uh, installment for some reason, but does not appear. And this one also breaks the normal subtitle rule regarding Korean. Usually when any character who doesn't speak Korean is around, subtitles don't appear on screen. So we as the audience feel just as confused as the other characters do. However, they appear quite frequently in this particular installment. This episode actually leaked on the same day as its Verizon release, which was January 14th, 2008. It came to ABC.com one week later. This was by far my favorite of the bunch. Uh, As much as I love this show, there aren't a whole lot of LOL moments for me throughout the series, but I laughed the whole time that Jin was having a meltdown and doing his best Happy Gilmore impression. (laughs) Yep. The Envelope. 
A timer beeps as Juliet runs to her oven to get muffins out. She burns her hand just as the doorbell rings. She runs her hand underwater before going to open the door. It's Amelia from A Tale of Two Cities, the season three premiere, who gets her something from the freezer. Juliet assures Amelia that she's fine. She just wanted to clean up her home. Amelia asks if Juliet is nervous because of Ben and asks if he was invited to the book club today. It's confirmed she knows how he feels about her and that things have become awkward. Even though he hasn't said it, things are complicated. But Amelia insists complicated doesn't make you cry. Juliet says that she's crying because she burned her hand and Amelia asks her what's really wrong. Juliet tells Amelia she believes they're in big trouble and makes Amelia promise not to tell anyone what she's about to show her. She goes to her drawer and pulls out an envelope. Just as she's about to open it, the doorbell rings again. Now, this episode had slightly different credits than all the other installments. Its story is by Damon Lindelof and J.J. Abrams, while the teleplay is by uh, Damon Lindelof only, and it was directed by Jack Bender. Now, the reason for the different credits in this, the teleplay and story, and, and the fact that J.J. Abrams' name is on it, is because unlike all the other Mobisodes, this is actually a deleted scene from the season three premiere, A Tale of Two Cities. We, uh, I believe it was Jake and I actually discussed that um, when that particular uh, when we covered that particular episode. Thus, it uses those same credits as well as the same producer credits from the full season three premiere. As I said earlier, certain credits are different. You can go to Lostpedia to uh, learn more about that. Uh, it has a production code number of nine, despite being the 12th to air. The eponymous envelope, of course, contains the x-rays of Ben's tumor. It was originally released on January 21st, 2008 on Verizon and one week later on ABC.com. I think this is very interesting because it kind of touches on the implications of Ben getting of Ben getting cancer, getting this tumor, and how it might affect, you know, maybe uh, the others, the community, or the status, the status quo. Of it's just interesting some of the ramifications that this could have because this isn't supposed to happen. Ben's not supposed to be getting. This isn't supposed to be happening to him. So it's interesting some of the, some of what could have, some of what could come from this as if we needed any more proof that Juliet couldn't be trusted the deal in the decoy village from the end of season two Michael is tied up in one of the huts we've seen him in a similar situation before Juliet walks in and introduces herself she tells him that they're willing to give him the boat he wants upon completion of the deal he's happy about this she goes on to tell him that she spent time with walt and she mentions as he's heard many times before that walt is special she mentions that she's actually glad michael wants to take him away however he doesn't believe she really cares but she tells him the same thing the others always say she's not the enemy which he also doesn't believe she then talks about Ben, the man Michael is meant to rescue, and confirms that he is the one who will allow Michael to leave. He says how uh, he's, he comments that he'll just have to believe her, I guess. Uh, she tells him that she made a deal with Ben, too. He questions why she's still there, if that's the case. She says how Ben saved her sister's life, 
but she isn't there, the sister. She's in Miami. Michael asks why she would make this deal, why she would stay in exchange for saving Rachel's life if she couldn't be with Rachel. Juliet counters that Michael would do anything to save Walt's life. That's why she saved her sister's life. She then reminds him of his list and wishes him luck. He slams his feet on the floor in anger. This particular one was written by Elizabeth Sarnoff, directed by Jack Bender. It takes place around the same time of the episode Dave from season two. This is the only scene that, according to Lostpedia, again, this is the only scene that Michael and Juliet ever share. And we also find out that Michael was actually the first survivor to meet Juliet. Although it was released as episode four, it was the 10th produced, originally released on Verizon, November 26th, 2007, and ABC.com one week later. Wait, 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 wait. Technically, wouldn't Walt be the first survivor who met Juliet? I mean, she said right in this episode that she spent time with Walt. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, we didn't actually see Walt and Juliet interact in a scene together. But I mean, so if you're if you're only counting characters that we've actually seen interact with Juliet, then yeah, Michael would be the first to have met Juliet. But anyway. Having a little more information is always nice, but in this case, I don't think there was anything said here that we couldn't surmise on our own. I mean, how many times can we really hear that Walt is special? Tropical depression. We see the return of the character Dr. Arst, who is attempting to catch a bug as Michael approaches him. Michael asks about the wind tomorrow, and Arst doesn't know. He comments that he's not a meteorologist, just a high school science teacher. He then admits that what he said recently, from taking place at the end of season one, about monsoon season was fabricated. He made it all up just so Michael and company would launch the raft sooner to get them rescued. Michael is surprised and starts to leave, but Arst begins telling him a story. Arst goes on to say that he catfished a woman in Australia using a friend's picture. They chatted, agreed to meet, and he eventually told her the truth and apologized. They went out to dinner, even ordered the lobster, and she abandoned him in the restaurant. Michael once again tries to leave, but Arst continues, telling him the worst part is he could have just stayed in Sydney, took a little extra time, got on a little bit of a vacation, but instead booked a quick flight home, Oceanic 815. Michael says how he'd love to feel sorry for Arst, but everyone else on that beach has a sob story too. Arst acknowledges this and once again apologizes for lying about the weather. Michael accepts the apology and says they'll be launching soon, going to get help. Arst is happy about this and says that he'll be the first one waving to Michael when he returns with the help. They part ways. This was written by Carlton Cuse, directed by Jack Bender, takes place on day 43, post-crash. It was the ninth released and the 11th filmed installment. Uh, This episode fixes the supposed continuity error of monsoon season never actually occurring at the end of season one. It originally aired December 31st, 2007 on Verizon and one week later on ABC.com. These missing pieces really do a great job of conveying how utterly clueless Arts was. (laughs) Yep. Ars and Crafts. Jin and Sun are sitting on the beach speaking in Korean. Via the subtitles, we see they're discussing the relationship between Shannon and Boone. Are they romantic or siblings? Of course, it's both. 
Uh, Sun is adamant, however, that they are siblings, and Jin asks if they speak Korean and if that's how she knows. She has to lie and say that it's just a guess. Arst then comes running up to them, asking about moving to the caves instead of the beach, and asks if they're going. Michael and Hurley are sitting nearby, and Hurley tells Arst that the Quans don't speak English. Arst then asks Hurley and or asks if Hurley and or Michael are going. Michael says he doesn't even know what Arst is talking about. He mentions the plan to move to the caves. Jack, Locke, and Kate, and he doesn't remember the names of the latter two, uh, found the caves and want to move people inland. Hurley doesn't understand the problem. Ars becomes very angry with this and for some reason gives his first reason as moisture, which will lead to an abundance of insects. That's his number one reason for not wanting to move. Uh, he then yells back to Jin and Sun, telling them to vote no on going to the caves. Michael tells him that shouting at them won't make them understand. It's been a while since that sort of reference was made, but a classic season one comment nonetheless, so of course I loved it. Uh, Hurley says if Jack thinks it's a good idea, they should trust him. Arzd questions what makes Jack a leader. Is it because he's a doctor? He then says how a few days ago he was in the jungle answering the call of nature when Jack ran past him screaming for his dad. I believe his exact quote was crying for his daddy. I don't quite remember. Um, he realizes that they're not budging and feels that he's wasting his breath. He then calls them morons and wishes them luck in the caves. He'll be on the beach where people want to survive. We then hear the noise of the monster, which shakes ours to his core. And he quickly says that he'll see them at the caves. Written by Damon Lindelof, directed by Jack Bender. This episode features uh, more than two speaking parts, which most of these uh, Mobisodes didn't have. Uh, even though Arst mentions moving to the caves, we see in the episode Expose that he still actually has a shelter on the beach on day 24. This episode takes place on day 7. Although it was released as episode 7, it was the 12th produced. A continuity error, according to Lostpedia, Saeed discussed the caves with Michael while Jin was still handcuffed to the plane wreckage. Therefore, Michael should have known about the caves or Jin should still be handcuffed to the plane. Originally released on Verizon on December 17th, 2007, and one week later on ABC.com. For the record, I'm also taking moisture over smoke every time. Ah. So it begins. In the jungle, with the camera in a low-to-the-ground point-of-view position, we see things from Vincent's perspective as he runs through the jungle. He pauses by some suitcases and hears wreckage in the background. He then hears a whistle, and we see that it's Christian actually wearing the white tennis shoes. Uh, Christian is calling him over, petting him, and he tells Vincent to go find his son, Jack. He's over in the bamboo forest, unconscious, and needs to be woken up. Vincent runs off. Christian simply looks at him running and insists Jack, quote, has work to do, unquote. We then see the opening shot from the pilot episode, Jack's eye opening, waking up slowly, seeing Vincent, etc. This one was written by Drew Goddard, directed, as always, by Jack Bender. It takes place, of course, on day one. It was the 13th produced and the 13th released. It contains reused footage from the pilot. This installment was leaked the same day as the Verizon release, which was January 28th, 2008, before being released to ABC.com one week later. 
uh, this was another one that I liked, you know, I guess I like, I guess I like the ones with Christian in them, but, uh, this was a nice, I don't know, this was a nice way to wrap up these, these Mobisodes, you know, start, you know, end with the beginning, so to speak, or whatever. Uh, they do this, they do the Vincent point of view, I think, a couple more times throughout the show. Uh, we never got like a, we never got a, a Vincent episode or a Vincent backstory. I feel like that was theorized that we were going to get that, or maybe Damon or Carlton joked that we were going to get it at one point. But... I remember watching this one and going, what the heck? You know, because you know, at the time, we still had no idea what was going on with Christian Shepherd on the island. Um, you know, we didn't know if he was like a figment of someone's imagination or if he was like, you know, really, you know, Christian Shepherd come back to life on the island. Um, but, you know, of course, we know now who Christian really was on the island. Um, so that actually makes it really interesting to, you know, to rewatch now. And this was pretty much the only one of those Mobisodes that really dealt with the island mythology, uh, which, you know, especially makes it interesting to me. It just kind of demonstrates that he was putting this plan into action just, you know, from the very moment of the crash. Um, basically took advantage of the dead body of Christian Shepherd crashing on the island with the plane and just kind of went with that. That is all I have for uh, these Mobisodes. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed this particular uh, episode. It's, you know, it's not a full, full, full-on episode. Uh, we will be back very soon with the opening of Season 4. Um, it's also worth noting the fact that this... I mean, yes, although it was talked about, uh, you know, it was it was sort of released... I think it was released uh, before season four. If not, the credits definitely gave it away. And it's something that we will be talking about um, in the next few episodes. This features the return of um, Harold Perrineau as Michael to the show. So, you know, it was nice that especially because whether you knew that he was coming back for season four or not, because of the fact that these take place seasons one well, some of them seasons one and two, some, you know, whatever. The fact that they take place in that sort of time frame, it's nice that, that he, you know, actually got to to feature in them. I am a fan of these. I'm a big uh, canon person. Anything that's canon uh, in terms of, of any TV show that I watch, uh, you know, I'm basically, I'm right there. If it's dubbed canon by the main, you know, the main creative forces, in this case, Damon and Carlton, I'm, you know, I'm right there when I was first watching the show. I think the first time I watched it through, meaning when I watched seasons one through four on ABC's website, I didn't know about them, especially because I wasn't 100% sure where they fit into the story. But probably because I had watched the first four seasons a few times uh, before season five, I think at one of those points, I found it, figured out where they're supposed to fit in, and then I watched them. Um, for those of you who are on this episode, when did you, uh, first, were you, because, you know, some of you watched the show while it was on, some of you watched the show, at, you know, after, uh, you know, some of these seasons had aired, even, you know, like myself, I didn't get into the show right until before season five. So it took me a little while. When did you find out about 
these missing pieces? When did you watch them? I would love to hear those stories. Well, I know that I pretty much watched them as they were being released. Like, you know, I probably watched each of them like you know within a day of the release. Um, because like by then I was watching the show. I started catching up on Lost the summer before season three. So I watched season three as it aired. But I honestly don't remember how I first found out about Missing Pieces. Um, had to have been on the web somewhere. I don't know if it was ABC's website or if it was like one of the Lost forums or Lostpedia. One of those sites announced it. So I somehow knew the release schedule, so I like anticipated every every episode that came out. Even though the watch didn't give me high expectations, uh, I was still curious to see like what else they would put out there. So yeah, I quickly got pretty intrigued by them. I would think. Uh, they were on the season four DVD, so that's probably how I first, how I first found these. Because uh, I always got the, I always got the new season on DVD for Christmas, and uh, you know, then it, w- it would immediately be me watching, rewatching the season and rewatching any special features, finding, you know, all the hidden Easter eggs in there. So it was probably it was probably that. It was probably around that time after they had released season four on DVD. I definitely didn't watch it on. I definitely didn't watch it on the, the computer. I didn't have a Verizon phone. I didn't even really know that they released him on Verizon phones until just recently. So it was most likely the season four DVD is how I first found these. Like I said before, I really didn't remember these at all but I know I did watch them at some point, at least once. Uh, They were being released during the same time period that I was binging the first three seasons, so I know I didn't watch them as they were coming out. I vaguely recall having a hard time finding them, actually, Uh, asking friends who had Verizon if I could view them on their phone. Uh, But by the time I actually knew about them, probably at some point during season four, I'm not even sure they were still available. Okay, okay. Why don't you guys uh, let them know your social media so that people can follow along with all of the other stuff that you're doing? Yeah, you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash hazard time. And you can also follow me on Twitter. That's at hazard time. Time is in T-I-M-E. Feel free to reach out to me, as always, across all forms of social media, at 7th Power. Spell it out. Replace the V with the 7. Okay, you can follow me, Lost Wayne, uh, at my Twitter handle, which is Celebok, and that's C-E-L-E-B-O-K. I tweet several times a week uh, about Lost, you know, whether it's, a, whether it's a quote from the show or just random Lost-related thoughts. So, yeah. All right, everybody, this has been another episode of Lost with Friends, and I will end the only way I know how with the traditional thank you, namaste, and good luck. Thank <laughs> you.